Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, March the 17th, 2023. It's been quite a week on the economic front, and it's ending badly. Uh, bank stocks are sliding once again, according to the FT. Uh, after the First Republic rescue fails to reassure investors, confidence is in crisis. Um, the Wall Street Journal also leads with the decline of stocks after the crisis. Maybe that's the right or wrong word about First Republic. I don't want to make the crisis even deeper. Uh, and the New York Times, which doesn't tend to lead with economic stories, also leads with uh, the resumed slide of bank shares. It's, it's worrying on many different fronts. But for many of us, grasping the reality of economics is tricky and hard, and we need to rely on the mm -hmm. economists able to do this. And who better than the author of the brilliant Grasping Reality Substack than my old friend Brad DeLong. He's been on the show several times before, one talking about his best-selling work, Slouching Towards Utopia, which is already up to 35,000 sales. Uh, it's an amazing book. Um, and he also came on uh, a couple of months ago in December of last year, talking about how uh, 2022 uh, was a good economic year for most Americans. And we need to thank Joe Biden's, what he calls supply-side progressivism, for this. Uh Three months is a long time in economics, Brad, isn't it? Yes, yes, it is a very long time in economics. This is one of those times when whole years seem to happen in a week or in a day. Uh, explain what you mean. Um, simply that a week ago Thursday, um, we kind of learned something that we really should have recognized two years ago or so, you know, back when Elon Musk tweeted one word, um, a one word tweet, game stonk. And Elon Musk's fanboys reacted by all running out and buying shares of the company GameStop, which was arguably overvalued before and which then quintupled in value to an absolutely absurd um, position. Um, got a couple of financiers in trouble, closed down a couple of hedge funds, I think, that were betting that the price of GameStop would come back from reality, from what they saw as elevated thing. Um, and, you know, the people who bought GameStop, um, because Elon Musk tweeted GameStop, you know, those who didn't exit, those who didn't run for an exit quickly, once the price started rising, you know, they wound up losing money, but they had fun. They were part of a social movement led by Elon Musk. Um, presumably some of them at least thought it was worth doing. And this is a sign that all of a sudden finance is now part of the social media game. And just as we were thinking that one tweet by Elon Musk can push a stock way up, you know, we kind of found a week ago Thursday that a couple of tweets by Silicon Valley venture capitalists um, can close a bank. You know, can bankrupt a bank that looked otherwise as if it was likely to skate through. Is then the crisis, Brad, one of social media? There was a, an interesting piece by Elizabeth Spears in the 
yeah. times this morning. Uh, yes. When it yes. comes to Silicon Valley Bank, can we blame the venture capitalists for essentially manipulating social media and causing this run on the bank? Or are there deeper structural forces here? Play? All right. Well, there is a deeper structural force, right? Which is that, you know, we are... We're supposed to have a system in which there are people who just don't think about a bank and who put their money in the bank and the money is there and they have deposits and the right thing to do is to have their deposits insured by the government and to have the bank pay an insurance premium to the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation so that the banks are insured and if anything happens... And then on top of that, to have a layer of deposits from large actors who pay attention. And, you know, large actors who know very well that in some sense, you're, if you give the view to make a deposit in a bank, the money is not there. What you really have done is you've loaned money to the bank and you kind of need to keep an eye on them for what they're doing with their money, just as you would with anyone you loan money to. You know, in this nice bifurcation between insured deposits, which are people who don't think about the bank, and uninsured deposits, which are big players who think about the bank and you know, will pull their deposits if the bank starts to do anything kind of dicey or shady. The problem was that line went way awry um, over the past decade or so, so that 93% of the deposits in Silicon Valley Bank were uninsured. And yet it looks as if at least half those deposits were owned by people who were just thought this is a bank, you know, we're not paying attention to it. Our venture capitalists say we should put our money in this bank, you know, they have lots of nice services, they understand Silicon Valley, and so on and so forth. So first structural feature is a great mismatch between which deposits are insured and which deposits are by people who aren't paying attention and thus should be insured. You know, on top of that, you have to add a second mismatch, which is that the management of Silicon Valley Bank made a very, very large bet um, that interest rates would not go up by very much. And that even if interest rates went up by a lot, um, they would be able to have time to recapitalize themselves and find other sources of funds and okay, just in case they took very large losses on their portfolio because they bought long-term bonds and when interest rates go up, the prices of existing long-term bonds went down. Um, well, it turned out that because we are in a social media age, they did not have a lot of time to recapitalize their bank and also, they had much less credit from the great and good of Silicon Valley um, than they thought they had. My view is the bank kind of expected that Silicon Valley was behind them, you know, that they were in some trouble and were looking for people who were willing to invest money in them to recapitalize them because they had taken a lot of losses. And they were fencing around, you know, how much of an ownership of this bank do you get and how much of its future profits, if there are any, do you get in exchange for putting X billion dollars into the bank? And, you know, kind of the kind of the thing for the great and good of Silicon Valley, for everyone who's banked with SVB over the past 40 years to do at that point would have been to say this is a valued part of our community. We're willing to make a capital contribution. We're willing to invest in Silicon Valley Bank on reasonable terms, and let's talk about it. 
You know, instead, Peter Tile of Founders Fund and a couple of others began telling and then tweeting out to the firms that their VC funds had, um, you know, had funded, get your money out of Silicon Valley Bank now. You know, and so as a result, you know, $40 billion of deposits left Silicon Valley Bank a week ago Thursday. Um, and, you know, simply a bank having to come up with $40 billion over the course of a day, they came remarkably close uh, to it. So, but Brad, does this, yeah. does social media create new rules for economics and for banks? It means or it simply go... compounds the old rules in terms of time and speed? Time and speed. Things that used to take weeks take hours. You know, in the financial crisis of 1825, you know, people in their rich people in their country houses of England had to read the news and decide to travel to London and then get in line outside the bank and then go into the bank and ask the bank teller, can I please withdraw um, my, my money because I don't think your bank is sound. And, you know, so the Bank of England had time to print up extra banknotes and then to wheel them through the December streets of London in the cold before dawn. So that when the bank actually did open on Monday morning, the people who came in wanting to pull their money out were confronted with large stacks of banknotes behind every teller, you know, just in case. And with a bank manager who would point to the stack of banknotes and say, does it look like we're in trouble? You know, and most of them indeed slunk away and the bank survived. Um, or so we know from the story that, you know, E.M. Forster's great aunt, Marianne, told about her brother's adventures during the financial crisis of 1825, um, which is how we know about this. Um, instead, this, have, this did happen in hours, right? Um, that Thursday at lunchtime, it looked like Silicon Valley Bank was going to pull through and that it would be able to get enough investors in order to you know, recapitalize itself. Um, Thursday night, it was gone. Um, and fortunately, Friday was a relatively slow day and the regulators had a chance to work over the weekend before getting something in place Sunday night before the Asia markets opened up. But, you know, that's a much faster pace, you know, that what was thought to be a lot of deposits that would only start moving slowly as sentiment and views percolated through a large community. Instead, it's all focused on Twitter. It's all focused on social media. And so people can change their behavior, you know, in an hour. And Brad, you've worked in DC. You know a lot of yeah. the players here. Janet yeah. Yellen yeah. is no different today than she was yesterday or last year. They're always Janet Yellen, central mm -hmm. government bankers, uh, yep. heads of the Fed. Ha mm -hmm. have, um, how do the Yellens of the world keep up with this? Do we perhaps need a chat GPT to create new Janet Yellens who oh. are able to deal with this new world? Or has she actually coped reasonably well with the crisis? Um, well, you know, I, I actually remember the day in 1994 no, when Secretary, Treasury Secretary Lloyd Benson had tasked my boss, Alicia Manel, with coming up for names for Federal Reserve governors. And she said, how about Janet? And I said, yeah, that's a great idea. Um, so in some ways, the fact that 
Janet is there has been my boss's decision and my enthusiastic approval and support of it kind of got her into this business. Um, and, you know, she's been in this business since 1994. Um, you know, she's been in this business for, you know, 28 years now. And so this is definitely not her first rodeo. You know, to the extent that you have seen it all, she has indeed seen it all. And so is the right person um, to be doing this. Yeah, what is, it is once again the sheer speed, right? That the Mexican financial crisis of 1994-1995, you know, we had about a month. Um, and that month felt like we were watching a slow-moving train wreck, but we could Dithering, there could be some dithering, and then there could be some negotiation, and then there could be some kind of hemming and hawing between the executive branch and the Congress about what exactly we can do. And there could be some writing of a bill and then testing of the waters. And then this very strange day when we got a letter from all four of the congressional leaders saying, please, please don't make us in Congress actually do anything um, on this you know, vote on it yourself. Um, rather, don't let us, don't make us vote on anything. Do it yourself. Um, and we'll pretend that, you know, we'll pretend you had the legal authority to do so, even if your lawyers tell you that you don't. Um, which was a very strange letter to get. Um, but nevertheless, we got it. We acted. You know, Mexico had a, small recession rather than a big depression as a result. And, you know, the United States Treasury made one and a half billion dollars out of the deal. And International Monetary Fund staffers grumbled that Treasury Secretary Bob Rubin had treated Mexico more as if it were a Goldman Sachs counterparty in trouble than if than as a than as a monetary and financial statesman should. But, you know, we can argue about that. Um, Brad, Brad so, if, if the you know, if we had the scale and depth of the 2008-9 banking crisis today in 2023. Would it be different given that back in 2008-9, Twitter was in its early stages, Facebook, I don't think even had a billion users. Um, is the financial system now because of social media, is it more fragile? You know, it really took, say that, before the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy, you know, Secretary Paulson and Chair Bernanke and I suppose, you know, um, were kind of certain that the financial system was still relatively stable and that a shock like Lehman Brothers would be unpleasant but would not be disastrous. You know, and it was disastrous, but it became it took a month for it to be clear how disastrous it was. Uh, because it took a month for people to absorb it and think about it and change their behavior and change their tolerance for risk. If it were happening today, that month would take three days. And, you know, you can hope that the fact that it would take three days would mean that in some sense the total shock would be less because people wouldn't be thinking about it night after night after night after night. And so because it happened quickly would not have the ability to panic um, to such a degree because they wouldn't have been thinking about it for a month. And so, 
Or you can also fear that because it happened so quickly, no one knows what's going on, so people panic by a great deal more. I'm now thinking that we're headed for the second world. That is certainly, you know, Janet Yellen and Jay Powell and Jamie Dimon thought that off well, if we simply transfer another $30 billion of bank deposits into, you know, First Republic, um, that will make everyone calm down and say, we'll let the things settle out. Um, and that does not really appear to be what's happening, that um, First Republic doesn't need deposits so much as it needs capital, as it needs someone willing to invest in it. Um, and it also needs to have a greater share of its deposits covered by the FDIC than I think the only 15% of its deposits that are covered by the FDIC right now, or maybe it's 20% that's covered. No, no, First Republic's 20, it's Citigroup, um, that's 15. Um, and this is awkward because, you know, the FDIC has no power to say all bank deposits are now covered. You know, Congress has written a law that says that bank deposits up until $250,000 are covered for each one individual and not more, you know, unless a systemic risk exception is declared. And, you know, you can't really declare a systemic risk exception unless you're really scared that a failure to pay, the failure to guarantee the deposits of this bank is likely to cause real, real trouble. And so that's a very dicey line to walk, which is why Janet Yellen and Jay Powell and company are kind of unwilling to go out there and say, you know, this has gone far enough. If you have bank deposits, simply do not worry, because they do not have the legal power to do that. Which is why what I would like to see right now is I would like to see a letter from McConnell and Schumer, from McCarthy and Jeffries, saying that the United States Congress believes that the government is not in the business of letting bank depositors lose their money or get their money tied up in bankruptcy proceedings, that that's not been the policy of the U.S. government since FDR in 1933, and we are swiftly moving legislation through the Congress you know, to revise the deposit insurance ceiling. Um, you know, I would really like to see that. So that then the actual policymakers can act knowing that there are congress substantial congressional majorities that have their back. It's one of the problems, Brad, that we everything gets politicized. So when it comes to Silicon Valley Bank, for example, there are some people who think, well, why should we, the government or we society fund the losses of wealthy tech entrepreneurs when in principle there's no difference between their money and uh, ordinary know. people's money in Wells Fargo or Bank of America. Well, again, you know, so far at least, you know, the the losses at Silicon Valley Bank from the fact that it bought long-term bonds that have declined in value um, were not that large. Yeah, that the and especially now that the Federal Reserve has this new bank term loan facility, which will make large loans on treasury bonds rather than haircut loans on treasury bonds. If that facility had been there, if the Fed had been willing to do that a week ago Thursday, you know, 
all of the deposits of Silicon Valley Bank could have left. And as near as I can see, it would still have been a functioning bank. So what you're saying um, then, Brad, is it that, that this it is a, a created crisis? Yeah, yeah. That it's it looks a, a social media storm, not in a teacup, but it was in economic terms, a storm in a teacup, yeah, which has yeah, become yeah, a real yeah. storm because of social media. Yeah, that the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation is act is going. It has paid out money to Silicon Valley Bank's depositors. Now it's it has given them their deposits back, but in return, it has all of the assets of Silicon Valley Bank. And it really looks to me, um, unless it's done some very dodgy things with its loans to vineyards, which I don't think it's done. Um, that Silicon Valley Bank's assets are ultimately going to be worth more to the FDIC than it has paid out, and that in a year when things settle down, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation will have made a profit, you know, on this deal. Is this good or bad? You know, well, you know, it's it indicates that there was no actual need for the, that there was no fundamental cause of the crisis at all. You know, that the bank was not really bankrupt. It was just, you know, in a position where it couldn't raise the money immediately, which no bank can ever do if subject to a large enough bank run. Um, and that the right thing to do was to do what, in fact, we did, which is to backstop it. And you no know, depositors are going to lose their money. And that includes... And plus, the government is not going to have to pay anything out, you know. What's so you're scratching your head. Yeah. I mean, talking to you makes me even more worried. Moore's law seems as ubiquitous today as it's ever been. We went right. from three weeks to three days for these bank yeah. runs. What happens when it becomes three hours or three minutes? At what point does this whole uh networked driven economy become untenable in terms of well, a you know, profound uh, crisis you know it was the newsletter author ben thompson who has an excellent newsletter called stratechery.com yeah i'm familiar with it that. well um said that enormous flexibility and speed in one part of a system requires rigidity and your know, buffers in another part and so I think banks are going to have to hold much more capital and governments are going to have to regulate them significantly more closely. By uh, law, should they should they hold that capital by law to become a bank? Yeah, I mean, we do. We, we do have um, legal standards for how much capital banks have to hold. And we do have your know, best practice legal standards for what important banks have to have in the way of plans of what will we do if a third of our deposits suddenly vanish overnight. Um, there was a 2018 regulatory reform or the an Economic Growth and Regulatory Reform Act over Trump, um, which Trump signed, which all the Republicans in Congress voted for, and which 17 Democratic senators and 55 Democratic, Democratic representatives voted for, you know, that exempted banks between 50 and $750 billion of assets, you know, bank of the size of SVB, from having to actually comply with those regulations and having to publish their ratios and having to have, you know, their particular plan. And if, you know, and if 
that law had not passed, Silicon Valley could not have gotten into trouble the way it got into trouble. And in fact, Vice Chair Lael Brainerd and was kind of screaming about how this is not a, or virtually screaming as much as a monetary policymaker ever screams about how this piece of deregulation was really a bad idea. You know, even though Jay Powell and so forth were behind it. Um, and, you know, Lael was right, which raises for me once again the question of why does Joe Biden reappoint a Republican worthy who is too friendly toward bank deregulation to chair the Federal Reserve Board for another term um, rather than this promote is Powell, a Democrat. Right? Yeah, Powell, rather than promote a Democrat who's actually has her head screwed on very, very straight. You know, Powell's an excellent manager, a very thoughtful guy, you know, but he is a Republican worthy. And like all Republican worthies, he tends to think that the economy in general is overregulated. Yeah. And in this case, it's pretty clear that the 2018 bill took a piece of regulation that was useful and that we really need to get back and removed it. Um, and now Silicon Valley Bank got into trouble, you know, but still it wouldn't it wouldn't have been in trouble. This is what Elizabeth right? Warren's um, been arguing very strongly, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, and she's right here. Uh, but Silicon Valley re wasn't really in trouble. You know, it, it Mention the bill, uh, Brad, for our, our, yeah. our listeners and viewers. Not everyone would be familiar with this piece of legislation that Trump undid. Yes, um, the 2018 Economic Growth and Regulatory Reform Act, you know, um, kind of thing that, you know, it's... Banks didn't want banks wanted more freedom to be kind of fast and loose with their portfolios and make some bets that regulators perhaps would not like and not to have to keep drawing up plans um, for what they'll do if things go south. And, you know, the argument was that a bank with less than seven hundred and fifty billion dollars in assets you know, well, if it failed, you know, you could simply rely on the normal bankruptcy process to deal with it. Um, and lo and behold, Silicon Valley Bank fails. Um, and not only does Silicon Valley begin screaming at the idea of we're going to have our cash tied up for the next two or three months in a bankruptcy process, but also people elsewhere get very, very nervous about whether their bank might fail, especially since such a huge share of bank deposits are now uninsured, are now above the insured ceiling. Yeah. And it was genuine, genuine fears that Silicon Valley Bank will fail and then Monday another 10 banks will fail and then we'll be in serious trouble. You know, those fears are what drove people like Larry Summers to say that, yes, we really do indeed need to rescue um, the depositors of Silicon Valley. But everything is still jittery today. Uh, the, you know, and everything is still very jittery. Um, well, you, you've mentioned Biden and you argue that Biden should replace Powell. Is this going to play out politically or is this still too no, no, no. inside the beltway for, for no. economists? Is this going to play a role, do you think, in the 2024 election? I'm mostly trying to lay down a marker that, you know, to Biden and to other future Democratic presidents, right, that there's always the tendency for a Democratic president to reappoint the Republican Fed chair, right, um, on the grounds that, you know, the Republican Fed chair is an establishment figure and financial confidence is important 
and you know why royal the why you know, why create another issue when there's a guy in the job and the organization is working you know and the answer is because from a democratic point of view even a highly competent and effective and skillful and smart republican worthy still does not see the world as it really is you know um and so they were likely to adopt policies that we will be sorry afterwards were adopted you know powell's not going to be replaced powell's in office for through biden's first term and into the Senate. okay so I, I take your point on Powell, but in a broader sense brad i mean if yeah. DeSantis or trump runs against biden next year is it likely that any of this will become uh, an issue which voters will be concerned with uh, are the the republicans going to bash biden with this crisis or is is it just another event which will be replaced by some other drama next week it's another event that will be replaced by some other drama next week right that Well, I don't know, right? I mean, it is it is very strange that with the 2008-2010 financial crisis, you know, it was handled by Paulson, a Republican, Bernanke, right, who was a Republican, um, and then, you know, Geithner, um, who is a Democrat, but was a Republican back in the old days, back when he worked for Henry Kissinger. Uh, before he decided to become a career civil servant and then moved over to the Democratic side, really during the Clinton administration. Um, and yet even so, you know, the it became very much Obama's yeah, bailout, um, that Obama owned all those policies. Um, and, you know, I think that's a thing that happens to the president, you know, that they're responsible for everything that happens on their watch, even for things over which they have no power, even for things where things went wrong because things they tried to do were blocked by the opposition party. Um, and, you know, that's just the way it is. And, you know, um, Biden will be judged by people depending on whether people have jobs, um, whether inflation is tolerable, and whether people feel that their money is secure and they're not subject to enormous risks right, of one sort or another. The fact that so many bank deposits are uninsured and that the U.S. government has the power to insure those above the limit um, only to the extent that policymakers are willing to declare a systemic risk exception um, is you know, a significant danger weakness in the system we currently have, which is why I'd like to see McCarthy and Jeffries and, you know, McConnell and Schumer um, saying that we are working to fix this, um, rather than see people out there claiming that the reason that Silicon Valley Bank um, went bankrupt was that it was too woke and its bankers were focused on diversity rather than finance. Um, if anything, the problem was its bankers were a little bit too focused on finance and thought they could make a clever bet um, on interest rates um, rather than actually doing what a bank should do, which is be sure to hedge everything. Brad, let's add on um, the other big story of the week, which you've talked about on your excellent uh, 
Substack, mm -hmm. grasping reality. Yes. Chat GPT four. Um, yes. As an economist, what what is your take on? It's, it's enormously hyped. You've written about it. You're following yeah. it as closely as most yeah. of us. Is this as yeah. as big a deal as some people are suggesting? As an economist, in economic terms. Um. Look, I, rem I remember back when I was 21 and was writing my undergraduate thesis, and it took a week to type up the thing, right? Um, it took a week to get a good copy of the thing from my hand-scrawled draft, you know, what with, you know, doing last-minute edits and then finding my father's fancy IBM Selectric typewriter and typing it up piece by piece by piece. It really took a full week, and some of that was because I'm a lousy typist. But most of it was that getting a document into readable form was really hard and took a long time. And then you only had one copy and the Xerox machines were not very good and so on. Um, the coming of the personal computer kind of quadrupled a white collar worker's productivity in terms of assembling and then moving and printing out words. And similar things for spreadsheets and, you know, database. It's kind of a quadrupling of white-collar productivity for a whole bunch of, you know, writing and calculating and, you know, looking up information jobs. The Internet is similar, a quadrupling of your ability to communicate um, and research. And now I think we're about to see an additional quadrupling in your ability to... Um, you know, actually write down what you really mean because chat GPT and its cousins, what they really are is that they are paragraph or page level autocomplete for everything, right? That roughly- They're what wiring into our means, brain, essentially. Yeah, so they, they... But what, 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 chat, what chat GPT-4 does is it, you know, kind of it takes a page and it looks out on the internet and it says this page you've just sent me, its closest neighbors on the internet are these pages. And the next page after these pages are those pages. So let me average all of those next pages from the pages that are the nearest neighbors to the pages you give me and send that to you. You know, it is indeed what autocomplete does. You know, autocomplete looks at the internet and says, given this sentence, this sentence fragment, what's the next word? What ChatGPT does is it says, given this page, you know, what would the next page likely to be? You know, and that's a wonderful, that's a marvelous thing. You know, to the extent that people on the internet writing things have been smart, and the next page makes logical sense. You know, to kind of give you as a first draft, um, this is the average of the next page that was written by the people who wrote the pages that are the nearest neighbors of the page you sent us. You know, that's a wonderful place to start. You know, and because editing is easier than writing, that is going to quadruple productivity in the, in the substantial sector of things that are kind of important to people like me and you. You know, plus there is the autocomplete for images. You know, given this image description, what is the most likely image that you're thinking given what images are a what images accompany the descriptions that are the nearest neighbors of the description you gave me on the internet right that's stable diffusion 
And that also is an absolutely wonderful place to start. I do think it may not be as big as the internet and it may not be as big as the personal computer, but it is of that order of magnitude. Um, and so I think it is going to be a wonderful and an important and an interesting thing. And I'm trying to figure out how to take advantage of it. Well, we all There's are. Let's end yeah. with the reference to your slouching towards oh, Utopia. Uh, the yes. book, um, An Economic History of the 20th Century, the long 20th century. You begin in 1870 and you end in 2010. Um, mm -hmm. How does this, and the book's going to come out in paperback, it's already written, yes. but how, yes. how does this play? How does ChatGPT play? in this narrative that you present if 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 you write a new intro for the the paperback which i'm sure will come out this year or next mm -hmm. will mm -hmm. you mention chat gpt does this alter our economic history if not of the 20th century certainly of the 21st century of the 21st it makes me somewhat but not overwhelmingly more optimistic right that there was a feeling that you know i'm um, Starting in 2007, progress in hardware becomes much more difficult. And for progress in software, you know, there's the question of whether social media was actually something that made us happier or simply something that scared us and hypnotized us. Um, and since those were the major growth sectors of the economy with a lot of biotech um, still speculative, there were significant worries that the pace of economic growth was significantly slowing down. Um, but you take the memory RNA vaccines um, and their build, their likely build out from COVID to a huge number of things. And you take chat GPT. And I think you can be significantly more optimistic that our, you know, high tech, that the high tech sector of our economy is still firing on all cylinders, which it did not look like in the days when biotech's promise was not yet here. And when, you know, the pinnacle of tech innovation was some strange combination of social medias and crypto, you know, which seemed to be things of dubious value to anyone. 